Well, we have a few uh, special guests with us today, and they come from City Bible Church in Sacramento. I see some smiling faces back there. Uh, we want to welcome these guys. They uh, served alongside of us up in Alaska, and uh, Alaska was really, um, how do I say it? It, it? it was more peaceful, more under control than maybe it's ever been, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with these folks who were uh, older and more mature as, as counselors. They were faithful in their service, and we uh, welcome them today. It's great to have them be sure. They're going to stick around. They heard there was food, so they came. And uh, we want to be sure they get some food and, and that we uh, uh, introduce ourselves to them and just enjoy them. Uh, maybe you guys would just raise your hand so we can see where you are. Look, you'll have to look behind you. I, here's a few over here, a couple in the back. Anyway, great to have you guys. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Jerry Bridges. He is an author. He went home to be with the Lord back in 2016. He has written uh, a whole host of books, and I often say to people, anything Jerry Bridges has written, you ought to read. It's good, and it's helpful. It's very accessible stuff. He wrote probably most famously uh, uh, Trusting God, the Pursuit of Holiness, The Practice of Godliness. Just before he passed, he wrote another great book on uh, a really brief book. We've had it in the book spinner back here entitled, Who Am I? It was on our identity in Christ. He wrote a book not too many years ago by the title, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And in the introduction, he wrote these words, quote, the motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own refined or subtle sins. On the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than the sins of the saints. In fact, we often indulge in the more respectable or even acceptable sins without any sense of sin whatsoever. I think he's dead on. In this book, he takes on a number of sins that, that tend to evade our radar as we sort of live our lives. I think in part because they're so common to the human condition. These are just sins that, that every man breathes in and out. And um, it's true even in the church that we've forgotten these sins. We, we don't pay attention to them much. Sins like ungodliness, anxiety, discontentment, ingratitude, selfishness, impatience, envy, Sins of the tongue, gossip and slander, worldliness, sins like that. Those are all chapters in this book. And these are sins, I think, in many circles and in many hearts considered essentially minor if they're sins at all. Our text today in Philippians brings us face to face with two such sins, sins that would be easily overlooked, but sins that plagued the Philippian church and sins that we also struggle with at some level, to be sure. Whether corporately or not, I know individually we wrestle with these things. 
And those sins, destructive as they are, are the sins of grumbling and disputing. They're really fraternal twins. They come in the same womb. They're, they're, they're knit together. And I want to take just a moment, if we might, to remember again the context in which we find these things. We should never grow weary of sort of backtracking and tracing our steps because repetition is the mother of learning and we need to remember the context in which all of this comes. Back in chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul gives us really what is the overarching commandment of this rich section of scripture. We are called to live a certain kind of life. You can look at it there with me. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the overarching concern. Here's my only concern, that you lead a life that is representative and worthy of the gospel that saved you. This is the obligation of every believer, without exception, to live a life that, that demonstrates a departure from old sinful patterns and a life that instead is, is, is inclined toward the new man, toward a new life in Christ, a life that's like our Lord's. And Paul goes on to explain exactly what he means, what's in his mind about this, this worthy walk that honors the gospel which saved us. And you, the first thing we noted, and it's critical, and we keep coming back to it time and again because I don't think it's in the minds of most American Christians, and it is this, that a life that is worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot even begin to be lived outside of the context of relationship with other believers. Christ has called us out of the world, and he has called us into the church. And the faithful, God-honoring Christian life is a life that is lived in the context of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he goes on to talk right there in verse 27 about he considers life in the church as the church faces opposition from the outside and he tells us that we've, we've got to stand firm together. We've got to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We've got to suffer together for the faith of the gospel. These are the things that we do united as one in the face of, a, of an opponent and the opposition that the, the world and the evil one brings. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to begin to talk about life inside the church. And he says life inside the church should also be marked by unity. It should be marked by a, a oneness of mind, by a oneness of love, by a unity of spirit that we should be intent on, on one thing. We're, as we think about life among one another, we, we are aiming, we are, we are motivated to pursue unity by putting on humility, a lowliness of mind, and another centeredness that says you're more important than I am. And you'll remember that he illustrates it with one of the richest descriptions of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And he uses Jesus as an example of the epitome of humility. And he says this is the way you pursue that unity. This is the way it is preserved, that you are humble like Christ. 
He says, if you call yourself Christians, live as Christians, live like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, live a life of obedience, working out this great salvation that God has worked in. And that's where we left off last week. And I just want to note this before we move forward. Please understand this, brothers and sisters, that the grace of God in salvation is no passive thing. It's not a one-time decision. You're in the kingdom of God and then it's all over. No, the grace that comes to us in salvation is mighty. It's a powerful dynamic that actually bears out fruit in the life in the likeness of Christ. Titus 2, 10 through 12 says that this grace that saved us also, quote, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you see that grace is a a dynamic working in your life as God is sanctifying you and bearing this saving work, this newness of life out of you, you then deny ungodliness, you then deny worldly desires, and you begin to live in a way that is sensible and righteous and godly in this present age. God is actively involved by his spirit and through the word, conforming his children into the likeness of Christ. And as he is working in us and sanctifying us, the end result is that we adorn the gospel of God. It's like hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. It, it dresses it up. It shows itself forth in all of its splendor and all of its glory. The great and mighty grace of God working in the people of God is a bright and shining light in this world. And it should be obvious to all that he is working in us and we are working it out. So Paul, if I might summarize it, considers the church's relationship to the world and then the church's relationship among one another. And he calls us then to put on humility and to put off self-centeredness and anything else that might threaten unity in the church. And now he gets real specific. He's going to put his finger on something that the Philippian church was struggling with. And he says, look, you've got to put off, you've got to put off grumbling and you've got to put off disputing. You guys need to stop that altogether. You see, grumbling and disputing is something that we would expect from the world, right? Because the world's at enmity with God. Because we we know from the book of Romans that, that, that cursing and bitterness is, is, is in their hearts. They're full of it, that text says. It's one thing when a three-year-old complains on a, on a five-mile walk. It's another thing when dad's complaining, right? We would expect it of the three-year-old. We would expect complaint of the world. But complaint and dispute has no place among the people of God, none. Sadly, this very serious sin is one that has a very long history among the people of God. And we're going to begin this morning actually in the Older Testament. If you want to flip to the book of Numbers, we really could go to a number of places in 
the Old Testament to see this, but I think Numbers will just confine our, our time there this morning. Numbers chapter 11. The language of Philippians 2, 14 and following really comes directly out of the Old Testament accounts of that unfaithful generation that was led through the wilderness and ultimately died in the wilderness. You think about the fact that here this privileged and select nation of God had lived in a time when God performed undeniable, obvious, before their eyes, miracles, mighty works of power, delivering them from slavery in Egypt. They saw with their own eyes the plagues. They walked across with their own feet on dry ground through the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army pursued. They ate with their own mouths manna from heaven. They drank that water which flowed from the rock. God was visibly in their midst by day as, as this cloud and, and at night there by a, a pillar of fire. They could look out of their tents in the evening and see him there. They had privileges that none of us have ever known and no nation had ever known. And God, by his mighty hand, was delivering them to the land of promise. And the sad reality is most of them never made it. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us very clearly that with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. It was not the plagues it was not Pharaoh's army, it was not the desert, it was not hunger in the wilderness, it was not the fortified walled cities and the military might of, of all of the ites that occupied the promised land. What did Israel in was their grumbling hearts. They repeatedly complained about the hardships that they, that they encountered. We'll just look at a few texts. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again saying, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we, listen, listen to this, as, as they're sort of casting back on Egypt. It was such a great place to be. We, we remember the fish we used to eat free. Oh, it was free. In Egypt, and the cucumbers and the melons, vine ripened. It's unbelievable. They've forgotten, haven't they? 
the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our, our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. You can't read that without feeling it in your gut, right? Some of you parents, perhaps most of you, will be able to relate to this in some way, shape, or form as you are seeking to raise little sinners who do not seem to understand much about who they are and about the way life works and about how good it is in this country and what a blessing it is to be raised under your tutelage. I love that when the kids walk out of here. I think these are the most privileged kids on the planet. They don't know that. I'll tell them someday. <laughs> Skip over to chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And you begin to hear it in their mouth. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out of the tent of meeting. I did not like that when my father said, you children, come out here. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision and I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, for he is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses, or against my servant, against Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he departed. And you know what happened to the two of them, right? Leprosy. And Moses again intercedes on their behalf. Look over at chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we would have died in the land of Egypt! or that we had died in this wilderness. Either way, Egypt or, or out here in the desert, I just wish we were dead. What could be so, so terrible? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, and would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let that register with you, this idea that wives and, and little ones are going to be plunder because it's only the little ones who are going to make it into the promised land. God will hold them accountable for that statement. It's an indictment against him. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. They tore their clothes and they again intercede on behalf of the people. We could look at chapter 2 and verse 20. I'll just make my way quickly there. 
the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there and there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke saying, if we had only perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the assembly, the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? Is it not a place of, uh, it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came from the presence of the assembly of the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And again, you see Miriam, or, uh, Moses having to deal with these grumbling people God in his patience putting up with them. And then in chapter 21, just look at verses four and five. They sent out from Mount Hor by way of the sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against, Mo, against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Now that is incoherent. That's an, that's an idiotic statement. But that is the heart of grumbling in its essence. The food's put on the table and the child says, ugh, I'm not eating that. What do we have in the fridge? There's nothing to eat in this house. You ever pulled open the fridge door and spoken those foolish words? I know there was food in your fridge and I know there was food in your closet and yet you spoke them, why? You see, this is the grumbling heart. In fact, Moses described them in Deuteronomy 32.5 as a perverse and crooked generation. Paul will use those very words in Philippians. Those words are repeated, by the way, in Matthew 12. 39, Matthew 17, 17, and Acts 2, 40. It's always drawing us back to this, to these people and to what went on in the desert. And it speaks really of a morally warped and perverted, distorted, twisted people who absolutely will not be conformed to a straight standard. They will not walk a straight path. Psalm 106 in verse 24 describes these people. It says, they did not believe his word, but they grumbled, get this, in their tents. They didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness. And that's precisely what happened. If you look back at Numbers 14, we pick this up later in the, in the story after the people have grumbled and he, God begins to protest. He says, how long shall I put up with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness 
even all of your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you except Caleb and Joshua. Your children, however, whom you said would be prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in this wilderness. James Boyce sums it up beautifully, quote, they were always murmuring. When they were in Egypt, they were murmuring because they were in Egypt. When they got out of Egypt, they were murmuring because they were out of Egypt. They murmured because they had nothing to eat, and when God supernaturally provided manna for them to eat, they murmured that they did not have meat. They murmured for 40 years, and when they got into the promised land, they were still murmuring, and and so it is. And brothers and sisters, you know this as well as I. We we can be just like this. Your default setting in life can be one of of complaint. And it, it is so common in our lives, it's become so prevalent, it's so often in our mouths that we're not even aware of it. All that God just said in that passage, does it sound to you like this is a light thing with the Lord, that that really complaining is not that significant a deal. I mean, you complain a little, so what? Who doesn't? He laid them waste in the wilderness because of it. God disdains complaining hearts. The language of Psalm 95.10, as as it describes the same generation, again, from the mouth of the Lord, for 40 years, listen to this word, I loathed that generation. I loathed them. And I said, they are a people who err in their hearts. They do not know my ways. They were a rebellious people, and it wasn't just in the things they did. At the heart of it really was this heart of complaint and these unworthy attitudes toward God. And beloved, we we need to pay attention to this. God wants us to understand this, which is why this same language is used by the Apostle Paul via the Spirit to to draw our attention to it. In fact, he, he uses it more than once. Look over at at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we're on our way back to Philippians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, there it is. Paul's saying, listen, you, you need to be aware of this. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. 
Now pay attention to this. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave the evil things they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. He says it a second time. And they were written for our instruction. He says it a third time. Upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What happened to most of that generation? They fell in the wilderness. We don't want to be like them. And Paul is calling the Philippians to live as a faithful people, an obedient people, unlike that generation, among the ungodly in this world. And so let's move now with that as a a long introduction to the book of Philippians and we'll pick up in chapter 2 and verse 12 where we started last week. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's all the further we're going to get, and we won't even finish all of that, really. Let me begin with just a preliminary observation about this text. You can see it. Paul, Paul does not identify in any way what the Philippians were complaining about, nor does he identify who it is they're complaining about. Are they complaining about God or are they complaining about one another? What is the nature of their complaint? We don't know. What are they so wound up about? We don't know. I pointed out a number of times on our way here that contention and strife were beginning to take root in this church and you get hints of it throughout the letter and then finally in verse 4 he just calls two ladies out by name, right? We can see throughout this, in fact, the very fact that this verse is in there, when Paul says do all things without grumbling or disputing, why would he even say that to a group of people who are not struggling with this? This was a challenge for them. This is at the root of one of the concerns that Paul has for this church, as good a church as they were. And he's concerned for peace and unity, and he wants these saints to put away their complaining and to put away their disputing and to, 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 to love each other and to do the things that make for peace and to do the things that preserve unity. I will say this. I know that it has application to the Philippians directly. I believe that it's broader than that and ultimately comes down to grumbling and complaining against God, if not for just this simple reason that every complaint that has ever come out of our mouth, no matter who it was directed to and what it was about, the buck stops with God. All complaining is against him. All of it at some level. Whatever their circumstances, 
these believers are being called to look at those circumstances as an opportunity for faithfulness, an opportunity to, 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 to give a God-honoring response and not resist him and not stiff-arm him. Paul wants them to learn how to be contented. He wants them to learn how to be thankful. He wants them to learn how to rejoice always, and they're simply not there yet. The very attitudes that they were conducting themselves with were fighting the very things that Paul was seeking to see realized in them, particularly joy. You think of the complainers in your life, and one thing is certain. They're not joyful people. They're not people who know delight in life. They're just always tied up in knots. There's always an issue. Listen to John Broadus. He was a a 19th century Baptist minister, the second president of the Southern Baptist Seminary. Broadus writes this, quote, an unthankful and complaining spirit is an abiding sin against God. And a cause of almost continual unhappiness. And yet how common such a spirit is, how prone we seem to be to forget the good in life and to remember and brood over its evil, to forget its joys and to think only of its sorrows, to forget thankfulness and remember only to complain, end quote. Oftentimes when I encounter a marriage that is struggling, I'll I'll listen for a long period of time and and the first question out of my mouth to this couple is, do you want things to change? And that sounds like a goofy question to ask people who are in turmoil, but the reality is with many people, it's about the war and it's about the complaint and they're just so wrapped up in all of that and Paul is saying, you need to, to lay that stuff down. And it begins in your heart. And so Paul commands them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, the second thing I would note is this. You see that this is comprehensive, utterly comprehensive. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. All of them. We're not to grumble in anything. In fact, in the original, it's very emphatic. In all things is right up front in the sentence. That's what he's really focused on. Listen, in everything... In all things, you're to do it in a particular way. And he says you're to literally, in all things, practice doing without grumblings and disputings. All kinds of grumbling, all kinds of disputing. He's not fingering really anything specific here. He's, he, this would encompass all of those sort of serious life-altering circumstances that come through your life. You know, the... the the threat of a, of a life uh, <laughs> diagnosis that, that would be fatal perhaps or the abandonment of a spouse or the loss of a job or, or maybe, maybe the moral collapse of your country. All the way to minor inconveniences, things like suffocating summer heat and the gas prices and you know, my back aches, all that kind of stuff, forgetting your wallet yet again, which came to me as I did that twice this week. This leaves us just zero ground for grumbling and complaining. There just shouldn't be any. 
And he's not talking about bringing your cares before the Lord. That, that is all over the scripture. We see that. In fact, you remember in 1 Peter 5 that we're commanded to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Why? So that he might exalt us at the proper time. And, and in the meantime, as we're encountering these challenges, these trials, we should cast all our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. You see, the, Lord, the Lord's not saying here, don't come to me with your, your pain and with your suffering and with your need. There's a right heart in all of that. That is not what this is talking about. He's talking about shaking your fist at God in defiance of heart. He's talking about a posture that is disgruntled with God disgruntled with others, disgruntled with the way God's doing things, disgruntled with circumstances. You could look at this positively and you could say, you know, Paul is really calling these people to be joyful, to be contented, to, to lead a humble life of willing submission to the Lord, but he comes at this from a negative angle and he says, look, you gotta stop grumbling. That word is is something certainly that we do with our mouth, but understand that it begins in the heart. It is an attitude before it's spoken. And the word means to murmur or to mutter. It has the idea of this, this inward, aggravated, personal displeasure that, that is always sort of on a slow boil in your life. And, and you don't really speak that in a broadcast, loud voice. No, you mutter it under your breath. It's, it's behind the scenes kind of talk. It is to be discontented with life, with life circumstances, with God, with other people, and it's to complain against them in your heart and under your breath. Paul's really talking about kind of the, the hushed undertones of a fault-finding life. He says, you gotta put that off. And then he uses the word disputing. It comes from the word, well, we derive the word dialogue from it, but this word in, in no way is as amiable as the word dialogue. This has the idea of argument, of bickering, of contending, of verbal debate and discord. It's a contentious spirit that is perpetually questioning everybody and everything. This is why James, when he deals with the concept of complaint, always is talking about uh, the complainer as being a judge. That's exactly right. It's a judge. It's one who sits and makes determinations about things all the time. They're, they're, they view themselves as a foreman in life, not a worker. These, these, these are people who are supervisors, Everybody else digs holes, but, but they're the ones who evaluate those holes and make sure that they're, you know, they're fit and they're right. And they're happy to tell you how you ought to dig. That's, that's what he's talking about here. That sort of disputing, whether it's with another person or it's with God, because you just don't really like the way things are panning out in your life, and therefore you're going to contend with your maker. And you put these two terms side by side and you begin to get the picture that the significant issue in this church was this underlying discontent. There was a lot of murmuring, a lot of disgruntled hearts, a lot of people who, who had been stewing for some time in their offenses and they had grown envious or, or jealous. 
They were muttering under their breath. They were having little gossipy conversations around, around the water cooler. There were conversations at lunch around the table. I mean, after all, we're just in our tent, right? It's okay to talk like these, this at home. We're family. We understand these things. People were agitated, and it was beginning to affect relationships in the church, and it was beginning to affect their testimony. And beloved, at this point, it, it's, it probably makes sense to pull over for a moment and just ask two questions. How is it that we get here? Some of you know this because you've come from a church where you've watched this happen. You've experienced this. And there are a lot of ways that we could answer that question, but I, I just want to give you what I think is the primary driving thrust as to how we get here. I think the answer is that, that things begin to grow wild and, and everything goes sideways when a church, corporately and individually, loses its focus on the gospel. It loses sight of the cross of Christ. Because when you lose sight of the cross and when you lose sight of God and his grace in the gospel, you also begin then to, to become a sucker for your own sinful proclivity to think of yourself more highly as you ought to. And so you now become a judge. And we begin as a congregation to nitpick and, 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 and to distance from one another and to have suspicions toward one another. We neglect doing the things that make for peace. We neglect pursuing unity. You stop living daily in the shadow of the cross and I guarantee you, you will grow entitled. Rather than being lowly like Christ who saved you in the ultimate demonstration of lowliness, you will grow by default into becoming high-minded toward people. You will serve less and you will demand in your heart that others serve you, agree with you, affirm you. And in some weird way, it becomes about you. And that's against everything that Christ died to accomplish in the church. Rather than being humble-minded servants, we become high-minded tyrants. And we start demanding our way and our will and our perspectives and our plans. We need to be wary of that. My second question would be this. Do you see these sins? Do I see these sins, these sins grumbling and disputing? in the way God does? Do we see them for the serious, serious sins that they are? Your grumbling is against God. Whatever else it may be about and whoever else it may be aimed at. And that is personal with him. To complain is to complain against him. It is personal with him. 
And we think otherwise. We think it's about circumstances. We think it's about our health. We think it's about, you know, a brother or a sister. We think it's about the, the way our parents raised us. Or we think it's about, you know, my broken down old vehicle and why can't I get something better and how come I can't. And we just get going down this road looking at all these sort of secondary, tertiary, all kinds of things that are way down here. And what we need to see is that as, as, as we complain is that, no, this is... Vertical. This is an issue about my heart toward you. Listen to the way Moses put it to Israel in Exodus 16.8. The Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. <laughs> I love this. He says, and what are we? <laughs> why, why are you coming at me? Your grumbling, ultimately, he says, your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And so lodge that. Lodge that in your head. Make no mistake that all grumbling in the end says something about God. What does it say about God? Well, it says this. It says, Lord, you're not sovereign. You're not in control of all the details of life. I just am suffering a spite of bad luck, and you don't care enough to fix it. It says that God is not trustworthy. In the words of the Egyptians, he's brought us into the desert to destroy us. Is that why Christ saved you? It says God is not good. It says he withholds good things from his people. Right in the face of Psalm 8411, which says that God withholds no good thing from his people. Right in the face of Romans 8.28, which says that he is working everything together in your life for good. It says he's not omniscient, that he's not aware of how hard this thing is. It says that he's not loving, that he doesn't ultimately care about me, even though 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter assures us, no, you go to God in prayer because he cares for you. I know how hard this is, but that's where you need to go, to him, because he cares. And it says that God is not wise, and it says he's not faithful. It says he's not sufficient. He's just not enough. And I think if I could boil it all down, I would put it this way, when you get right down to it in the end, it is to accuse God of utter incompetence. You're incompetent in your management of the universe. All grumbling in the end says something about God. All grumbling also says something about us. It says that we're proud. It demonstrates that we have an attitude of entitlement, not humility. We're selfish and we're entitled and we're privileged. We're elite. We're a cut above somehow others in this world. We deserve better. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's why that thing stuck with C.J. Mahaney because it confronts our mindset, doesn't it? When people ask him, how are you? His answer without fail is always what? Better than I deserve. That's helpful to us. That's helpful to us. It says we lack contentment. Grumbling and disputing are rooted in the soil of a sinfully discontented heart. 
Brethren, our, our complaining reveals our lusts. It, it, it is an open door to a heart that is always thinking that somehow things could be better for me. It's the echo of a discontented and dissatisfied, frankly, a worldly heart it says we're proud. It says we lack contentment. It, it proves that we're ungrateful, even though thankfulness is what? It's an express, one of those express statements in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, if I'm right, that, that, that his will for us is what? Gratitude, thanksgiving. Ephesians, we're told we should give thanks in everything. It's one of those statements about an express will of God for us and it should characterize the heart of the believer and saturate our praises on a daily basis. It says that we have a low view of God, that somehow God is a hoarder and not a giver. Is that true? It, it it's demonstrates in us a lack of faith in God who has revealed himself as good and that he's working all together for good, but we just don't take him at his word. Our grumbling hearts are disputing. This is such a tragedy in the church, but it just spills over, doesn't it? It 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 it, it defiles others. It spills over. Dissension brings dissension. Grumbling begets more grumbling. Have you ever noticed that? You can get together and get a crowd grumbling about stuff faster than anything. There's something about it that, 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 that lights up the flesh and the flesh delights in spilling over and, and just hauling everybody into this big vacuum of, of discouragement and, and, and complaint. What's the commandment? We're to gather together for the purpose of what? What do we do for one another? We edify one another. We encourage one another. You can't do that when your mouth is full of bitterness and complaint. And in the end, our complaining hearts expose that we are still self-centered sinners, doesn't it? Which is why God commands us to never complain about anything and to rejoice and give thanks in all things. And this just demonstrates again how ugly all of this is. You know, you know this at your own level, how much you hate to see this in your own children, this kind of attitude. Or when you hear these kind of entitled attitudes in the world around us, it drives you crazy. But, but brother and sister here this morning, listen, God has put the mirror of his word in front of each one of us today. Each one of us. And we need to resist looking elsewhere and complaining about how many complainers there are in this world. And we need to look instead in this mirror and say, Lord, forgive me. Worldly people are whiners. They're full of complaint. They're full of bitterness. They're contending with their maker. They are kicking at him. They defy him. Worldly people, what? They dispute and divide. They dispute and divorce. They dispute and they go to court. That's not us. By the grace of God, that is not us. We are no longer hateful and hating one another. That's the way the world is. It's insanity that we should grumble as God's children. 
Lamentations 3.39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Do you know who you are? And do you know what you deserve? Why should you ever offer a complaint about anything? Isaiah 45, 9, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing that you are making say he has no hands? Now, if you've seen my pottery, you might say I have no hands, okay? But I tell you, I've been doing pottery now for a number of years, and I can assure you this, I can tell you this with full assurance that never once, not once, has the clay ever protested as I worked it. Never. No complaining. It did not dispute with me. It's just pliable, and it's willing, and it's submissive. And it is as illogical as it is irreverent that we should be contending with the God who rules all things and controls everything, everything, everything in our lives. It's also unthinkable, brothers and sisters, that we should fight like cats in the church complaining about one another, grumbling in our hearts toward our brethren, disputing and contending. I'm just going to give you one verse from James, chapter 5 and verse 9. He says very bluntly, do not complain, brethren, against one another. We could just stop right there. It's the same thing that Paul is saying. Don't do it. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Again, to complain against your brother in Christ is to complain against the God who made him and the God who has saved him and the God who is sanctifying him. Why are you complaining about him? Is he your servant? To murmur about one another to bicker and to argue just shows brazen disregard for the purposes of God in the church. It demeans the work of Christ. We have been called to peace. We have been called to unity. We have been called to shine as lights in this dark world. We're not to be like the world. And some people in the church, and I'll, I'll never understand it, but they live as though strife were virtue. Like somehow we're not living authentically if we don't voice everything we think. You understand the folly of that, right? That your heart is, is bent and it thinks all kinds of things that it shouldn't think. Things for which we should repent, not things that we should confess publicly to people so that we just get it out as though somehow your heart and what you feel and what you think is just always truth that has to be dumped on the church so that the church can be fixed. This is not your Luther moment, I promise you. It's really not. <laughs> It's almost to them as though, though, though life in the church is, is meaningless and unfulfilling unless there's a good dispute. 
please think about the texts we've studied in Ephesians. Please think about the things that we've been considering here in, in Philippians. Consider what a, what a price is put on peace. It was purchased by the blood of Christ who is our peace. Peace is so valuable. Unity is, is precious. Is it precious to you? I would ask you that. If you're somebody who tends to be a complainer and you're someone who tends to stir things up, you're a firebrand in the church. You're going to hold us all accountable. I would ask this. Is, is peace and unity in the church as important to you? Does it stir you as much as whatever your pet peeve is? We can get all wrapped about the axle over, over the smallest of things, but these massive things like peace and love and unity, they, whatever, we can play loose or fast. This is just an egg toss. We'll just chuck it and hope for the best. Don't do it. Paul wants the Philippians to deal with the murmuring in their hearts. He wants them to put away their complaint and their bickering. And I just want to add this again, and I mentioned it last week. Paul is writing this from a spirit of love. He loves these people, and they love him. He's not taking them behind the woodshed and, and whacking them with it. He, he's coming to them and a, appealing to them as a faithful shepherd, and he's telling them the same thing, essentially, that he told the Ephesians, and that is you need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He wants them to think about who they are and all that Christ has done for them in his reconciling work. And you know, he, he opens this chapter by talking about, look, the encouragement that's in Christ, the consolation of his love, the fellowship that we share in the Spirit. You see, he's, he's speaking things that are drawing them to reflect on all that, that we have in Christ, this affection and compassion and joy, we're united in, in, in love and united in spirit. We're intent on being humble around one another. Look at Jesus, you remember how he was and what he did for us. And in light of all of that, beloved, work out your salvation. And as you do that, be focused on this. Really give attention to this because this is a weak point, Philippians, in your life. Put away your grumbling and disputing. It's just not fitting for God's people. And it's worth noting that this commandment to give up grumbling and disputing is only possible for the Philippians. It can only happen for them. Why? Because God is in them both to will and to work for his good purposes. They can only do it because they have the enablement of the Spirit God is at work in them and he wants their mouths to reflect this, their hearts to reflect this. And, and you know this, if you've ever tried to teach your children not to complain, it's almost impossible for them. I, did I use the word almost? I shouldn't have. It's impossible for them, apart from the spirit of God, to ever put off that self-oriented complaining heart because it's, it's the nature of our, of our sin nature and it, it, it's who we are. You know, you, you can buy cut flowers, can't you? And you can put them in a vase and you can put them on your table and they're beautiful and they brighten things up and they smell good for a time. 
but eventually what? Pretty quickly. They die off and they putrefy and they're right back to just being fit for fertilizer again. And that's the way it is to try and accomplish this sort of thing apart from the life of Christ in you by the Spirit of God. You see, in Christ, we are rooted in him, we're watered by him, we're pruned and we're fertilized, and so our flowers blossom and they give forth this this sweet aroma of Christ. People cannot help but walk past God's garden and smell the goodness of Christ. And to some, it's an aroma of life to life, to others, death to death. They don't particularly like the smell of Jesus but the faults with their sniff are not with him. And we're to, we're, we're to reflect him in, in all the beauty of, of his garden. I want you to look down just at verse 15 for a second. He says, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? And we'll get to this. We'll come back to this next week. But he says, so that, there's a purpose statement there, you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God above reproach. Do you see what, do you see what a, a grateful tongue shows? Do you see what a contented life manifests? It manifests the blamelessness and the innocence and the above reproachness of God's children. And all of that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen, by God's grace, we're different, aren't we? We should be. The tone of our home is different. The tone of our marriage is different. The tone of us at work with, with, with our employers and our, our, our colleagues is just different. They look at us and they say, why? Why are they so buoyant? Why do they come in and clouds break and sunshine floods through? Why is it that those people do not talk like we talk I don't ever hear them complaining about, about the situation around here. Don't they know how bad it is? A complaining and contentious Christian, beloved, is a contradiction in terms. It should never be. We are people who are characterized by love. Just listen to the list, you know it. And joy and peace we're patient. There's kindness about us. I lose track. It's like the ABCs. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And there's faithfulness. And there's self-control in our lives. Oh, sure, we encounter the ugliness of this world. But we just don't blurt everything we think. We repent of the bad things we think. And we, we testify of the goodness to God to us. And we're so thankful we're a people who prioritize the blood-brought peace of Christ. We're a people who prioritize the spirit-wrought unity. We are children under the care and feeding of a faithful Savior who loves us and never gives us anything, nothing, 
ever except what is for our good. Though we cannot see it at times, we can trust him by faith that it is good and we will one day on the other side see that and acknowledge the reality of it. But let us rejoice in him even now by faith, knowing as painful as it may be, as difficult as it may be, he's aware of it and he never gives us anything any temptation that is too great for us. He knows your load limit. He knows what you can take. You cannot say, God, I cannot bear this any longer. In his strength, you can. And you can bear it with joy. Rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, we are not contentious. We are contented. We are not grumblers. We are grateful. We are not whiners. We are worshipers. We are not worldly We're godly. We are Christ's and we seek to be like Christ who endured the most indignity and the most difficult circumstances and the greatest injustice ever and the most mistreatment ever who humbled himself more than any man and yet I challenge you, was complaint ever found in his mouth? Father, what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? It was for this reason that I came to this hour. Jesus embraced the cross. And we're out of time. So I will tell you rather than show you. But we could go back to Numbers 21 where the people had grumbled and you remember that God sent fiery serpents into their midst and they were were biting the people and the people were dying. And they go to Moses again like they always do. Moses intercede for us and Moses in fact did intercede for them. And God said, Moses, make a serpent out of bronze and put it up on a standard. And you hold up that standard and when people come and they look to that standard, they will be healed of that fatal venomous bite. And people, this is a camp of two million, people, people came from far and wide who'd been bitten by snakes and they looked to the bronze serpent and miraculously God healed them in light of it. And most of you know where I'm going. That look of faith to the standard was all it took to heal those who are suffering the consequences of their grumbling sin. Jesus, before Nicodemus speaks these words in John chapter three and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes will have In him, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Do you see it? There's good news for grumblers. And this text need not leave us in the mud and the mire. No, this text should drive us to look again to the cross and remember this Christ, perfect, 
high, holy, undefiled, innocent. He is separated from sinners. He went to the cross that he might bear our grumblings and bear our sin and give to us a life that we never could have had. We'd have gone to hell as grumblers. But God in his grace changes grumblers into thanksgivers, and we praise God for his great and mighty work in doing that. Brother and sister, let us put off grumbling and disputing. But let us come now to the table to remember the one who enables us to do that, who's forgiven us all of our sins and removed them as far as east is from west. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white like snow. Let's have the deacons come and pass the bread and the cup. We'll pass them both today, please, at the same time.
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's take and eat together in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's drink together. Our great Lord and Savior, we bow our heads before you, humbly again acknowledging our sins. Lord, how quickly our hearts turn to grumbling, how, how fragile we are in that regard that we would grumble about the weather, that we would grumble about the difficulties of our day-to-day -day lives. Lord, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus. You have given us life indeed, life abundant. You've forgiven our sins. You've imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to our account, and you have promised us that you will raise us up on the last day indeed, that we will never die. Lord, we, we look to you with gratitude in our hearts and our, our faces blush at the thought of how quickly we complain. Forgive us, we ask. I pray that this text today would again cast us on the Lord Jesus Christ to remember him who suffered so much at the hands of, of men and so much because of our sin in drinking down the cup of your wrath. Lord, that we would remember him and that we might put complaining far away from us just as he did as he submitted himself unto you the only wise God. Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us and we thank you for your kindness. Thank you again for the reminder this morning, this table. Thank you again, Lord, for all your goodness poured out on us, shaken together, spilling over. Lord, you, you, you are not a God who withholds good things from your people. We, we know it very well. And so we give you thanks and honor and praise and glory
We exult in you, for you are our God, and we give you thanks. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.